0: This is Flat 26 Podcast. I'm Emily. I'm Jess. (laughs) Um, Recording this episode three for the first time not in Flat 26. Big moment. (sighs) You're not meant to tell then. (laughs) I mean, yes, we're in Flat 26. That's very important. Um, So I chose the book this week. Week? Month?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Time? Right.
0: (laughs) Um, it's called *The Book of Evidence* by an author called John Banville, and it was published in 1989 and shortlisted for a prize Booker Booker Prize. Um,
1: I don't actually know what one instead of it but... Ishiguru. Oh, was it? Yeah, oh. remains of the day. And oh. when he won with *The Sea*, he beat Ishiguru. Oh. Um, never let me go. Oh. They have a bit of a rivalry.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Friendly rivalry. Um, So, um, I chose this book because I had to read it in first year of uni, and I don't really remember anything I read in first year of uni apart from, like, this and one other book. So, in my head, I thought, there must be something good about this book that I remember it. (laughs) Maybe you just
1: weren't drunk that day.
0: Yeah. I have no idea what module it was for or anything we talked about, though. Um... It's probably because I actually just read the book I was supposed to read. <laughs> um, and also, I wanted to pick something that was kind of on the surface, um, different themes, because our podcast was coming becoming quite feminist. <laughs> we yeah. want it to be about anything, <laughs> although that's was difficult for me and Jess. So I've picked something by a white male to be different. And it's about a white male. And it's about a white <laughs> male, yeah. A really horrible white male. Um, so we should start with just our initial opinion, I guess. And I want to ask you, Jess, did you
1: enjoy this book? I did. Yeah, I did enjoy it. Um, it's strange. I like the experience of reading it was less enjoyable for me than actually thinking about it afterwards. I felt like I got Mm. more out of thinking about it in terms of like the subject matter and um, the themes and kind of questions it raises—it's like spot on for me what I like
0: yeah. in
1: a book. Um, the language I, um, I struggled with a little bit. I it was a bit too flowery for me personally. Just the amount of adjectives, and I just found it quite dense. Which I think he is—he is known for that.
0: Yeah.
1: Not like I struggled to understand it or anything like that. I just found it very, I don't know, image dense. Um, And which, you know, I can't criticise too much because it was very evocative. I think it did a really good job in terms of that. But yeah, personally for me, there were just like too many adjectives.
0: Yeah, that's almost like what people think of as literature and what books are often like that Mm. but I think because of the stuff I've just been choosing to read in the last couple of years I've got out of practice with that a bit Mm -hmm. like with conversations with friends which we've both read like recently which is a really good book like the opposite it's just dialogue isn't it and yeah you can, you can almost read it like you're thinking it whereas this mm-hmm. you're like I'm reading a novel yeah and then I was trying to describe to Patrick what the style was and I was just like well he describes the weather a lot yeah <laughs> and it's like I know there's probably like there's obviously reasons why he's constantly describing the weather mm-hmm. for, for all those like really obvious reasons why you would in literature but I just haven't I don't know I just haven't read anything like that for a while
1: no I think my taste naturally um, leans towards a kind of like sparser, more economical kind mm. of language. But then, I don't know, I feel like, I don't think it's gratuitous, like his use of kind of descriptive language, because I do think it creates a certain atmosphere and it is incredibly evocative. Um, so it's not, he's not just including it to show off. no. Kind of thing, which I don't know, I read a lot of stuff at work, which I feel like is the opposite, so mm. it's good. he's obviously an amazing writer. I don't know I just the like it just seemed like with every noun there was a kind of adjective before it, <laughs> and it yeah. kind of reminded me of like when you write something in primary school or. or secondary school and they're kind of saying like oh don't just write the sky like yeah. write the something sky yeah. like what color is the sky and it's <laughs> like use a simile and yeah there, there's yeah. so many things but then yeah then there are
0: some really amazing examples of that where i think where he's described like a sensation or something like uh, yeah because i think a lot of his descriptions around like the senses so how mm-hmm. something tastes or feels or whatever and you're like
1: wow that's so spot on like it is spot why on. have i never thought of that before yeah um, He's an amazing writer. Yeah. I think it's just a taste thing for me. Um, yeah. It's definitely not a criticism.
0: Um, I forgot to say what the book's about. <laughs> 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 okay. The book is, um, I guess, a crime novel um, about um, a person called Freddie Montgomery, who is the narrator of the novel. Um, a guy from a sort of middle class, wealthy family who um, ki- kills a maid um, and is caught for it and put in prison for it um but i guess it's kind of like the opposite of a crime novel like a who done it because you know from like the first sentence that he's done it and he admits it mm-hmm. and instead of like in a normal crime novel where everything is like a subtle indication of the murderer like an object or a, a thing which only makes sense at the end he like explicitly references those the whole way through in his in his, because um, it's basically like he's writing it as like a confession, almost like a memoir. Mm-hmm. So he'll say like, "Oh yes, the fact that I um, picked up a knife that day, ha ha, significant or mm-hmm. something." Like he just draws attention to things which in a normal crime novel would be like not spoken of yeah. as things. Uh, well, I think, I think
1: it's of... almost it's almost like a parody yeah. or a subversion of a crime novel yeah. because you know, whereas in a crime, or, you know, your speculation about someone's motives, or whatever, everything's enriched with meaning, and you're kind of like, I don't know, everything has a reason, every action has some kind of explanation, or, you know, motive behind it, with him, it's completely the opposite, like, he strips everything of that, doesn't he, and I Mm. think when he, because he's addressing it to your honour, or Mm. whatever, so the whole thing is written addressed like that as a kind of confession like you said and he when he does kind of say like oh take note of that or mm. or don't or don't take note of that like you might read into it too much mm. there's kind of like a humor behind that
0: like yeah. a comedy
1: a dark kind of humor behind it because he just doesn't think anything has meaning does he yeah. like he completely strips everything of that all the way through yeah, I did find it quite funny in places. And that was kind of a weird feeling because
0: you, you're, you're completely in his voice and his world and some, some of the stuff he says is quite amusing or, or you just sort of, I just sort of agreed with him about certain things. If you looked at them, just that sentence, mm-hmm. I agree with that. Um, like he says at one point, like um, so he's talking about another character and he says he made the mistake of imagining that his possessions were a measure of his own worth. I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> that's true. you Shouldn't yeah. do that." But then you're like, "Oh, he's a murderer," <laughs> mm-hmm. and you feel weird, like about how to feel about him. Um, and it's it's almost like because he strips everything of meaning, that you all, I found myself almost not almost getting a bit drawn in to his mindset and not caring that he'd murdered someone. Yeah. And it's only till like certain parts like where you where he describes how he murdered her, which is not till like the second half that mm-hmm. you really you actually really then feel it. Yeah. And you feel angry and upset.
1: Well, because he is so distanced and he puts up this kind of distance the whole way through with between him and his decisions and him and his actions, you kind of feel with him like you're observing with him, so you mm. feel more of an affinity with him than you would if he was saying, like, oh, yeah, and then I decided I wanted to murder her, so I did. Mm. Rather than saying that, he's saying, and, you know, it was inevitable, and before I knew it, not in these words, but before I knew it, I was murdering her kind of thing. Um, You know, he he explicitly references his life as, or, you know, the actions that unfold as just drift. He's just drifting through them. He's not consciously kind of making these choices. And I think that makes it a lot easier to not necessarily empathize with him but yeah just Mm. stand with him in some sense
0: and i was i i was asking that question of myself like the whole way through because he's constantly saying that you know your life doesn't have any purpose or meaning you don't choose this really important path it just happens to you Mm -hmm. and then he then whenever he says something like that he then follows it with like but this isn't meant to be me trying to shirk blame like i'm responsible i did it but i don't know if that's just him being really clever because you do i did feel like that's his way of yeah of not taking responsibility for what he did it raised
1: um it raised questions about what responsibility is because or mm. well, i guess it kind of challenges our idea of what it is to be culpable or responsible for something because yeah, you're right. He all the way through. He's kind of deny, almost denying. It feels like he's denying responsibility because he's making out that everything's inevitable. But then he kind of quickly follows up. He says, at one point, he says, "Inevitable, mind you, does not mean excusable." So while he's distancing himself from it, he's still saying, "Oh, but I'm definitely responsible." Mm. and it's like but if you are essentially denying free will in a way which he does like you can read it as that he's constantly just saying like oh I you know he didn't really decide Mm. to do this just happened just drift these things happen before you're even aware of them kind of thing if there's no free will then surely there's no moral responsibility so what does he mean by responsibility you know like does he just mean that he was the one who carried it Mm. out Mm. it's it's like
0: he's trying to strip it of any morality yeah you just said more responsibility but like yeah it's like I feel like maybe it's and he raises a point of the failures of language maybe it's our failure of language in that whenever we talk about morality and things being good or bad there's no room for just there's no room for just admitting something without all of that morality put on it so Mm -hmm. he's trying to admit to a crime but without almost feeling guilty of it but he's still he's still admitting to it but then he's not saying i don't feel bad he's just trying to say it in a way where he doesn't feel anything yeah it's just
1: it's really hard it's really hard to put your finger on because it's so yeah it's so multifaceted like the way he talks about it yeah do you ever feel sorry for him then Um, About his life, or? I don't know. Not not in a strong way, I don't think. I think he's quite a pitiful character. I think I probably felt pity for him. Mm. I mean, all the way through, he is drinking, isn't he? Yeah. You know, it's punctuated by him basically just getting drunk. He's constantly Mm. just... On I booze. think he's constantly drunk. Doesn't he describe hell as... A, no, he describes
0: his prison sentence as, like, the longest hangover or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: no, he says when he wakes up in hell, it will be a Monday morning. <laughs> yeah. He wakes up Monday.
0: Um, yeah, I don't think I ever felt sorry for him, but he's... The way he describes, um, like, alienation from himself and from the world is quite poignant I think if you Mm -hmm. took it out of context Um, uh, just one thing he says um perhaps in time I would learn to play my part sufficiently well with enough conviction to take my place among the others the naturals those people on the bus all the rest of them like you can sort of pity him in that moment because mm-hmm. he he has like yeah he's completely alienated from everything around him and from himself like but then you wonder that could be just a universal description that yeah. many people would feel that way
1: and I, I mean I do like I mm. definitely when I read some of the things like moments like that in the book I empathize with them or I could relate to them definitely. Mm. And I think everyone would be able to. Like, everyone feels alienated or, like, almost like everyone else. Oh, I don't know. Like, life is an act. Or, like, you're having to put on an act. Mm -hmm. And when you're looking at everyone else, you're kind of wondering, are they consciously putting on that act as well or... Yeah, how, how can they be
0: so natural or something? Yeah. Where, and he always feels like he's the one that I isn't. think the
1: difference with him is that he thinks he's unique in that. He's so narcissistic yeah. that he thinks, oh, I must be the only, you know, I'm so intelligent. I'm the one mm-hmm. who has this double kind of, or this, I don't know, this um, plural, plurality in my mm-hmm. identity. Um, and everyone else is just this kind of like one actor person. Yeah, one dimensional
0: that's probably maybe that's yeah that's why he he always describes like the the other people in the book or like the working class characters like the taxi driver or the maid that he murders like he always Mm -hmm. describes them as innocent we were trying to work out why before we started recording and maybe that's maybe that's kind of how he comes about that is that he can't see them as having a complex inner life like him and all these like feelings and these existential
1: crises like he they're just simple folk you know yeah yeah and that, it's, that this isn't part of just the human condition and everyone yeah. is struggling with this just like you but he does it not just with strangers he does it with his wife
0: yeah, like he says
1: quite funny. early on when he's talking about his wife he says um we understood each other i think he says and then yeah we understand each other you see and then right at the end she comes to see him in prison. And he says, then it all came out, the rage and the shame, what I had done and not done, how little I knew, how little I understood. And it turns out there's, he, she's had this whole inner world that he has had no idea of. Like, and it completely baffles him. Like, oh, didn't even know what that was going on within my wife. But then at one point he says,
0: like, basically the reason he
1: likes her and the reason he loves her is, I
0: don't know the, that quote, but he says he basically loves her because she keeps things simple.
1: So, so saying- she's amoral.
0: Oh really? I don't yeah. remember that part. It was more like he says something like, "She knows how it is. Like she doesn't. Yeah. She doesn't mind or something like that. Almost implying like. She's never gonna
1: bother trying to make a real connection with mm-hmm. him. Yeah. Well, he says that they understood each other, but they didn't know each other mm. at the beginning. But yeah, it is. It is like this arrogance of kind of. Oh, I've got this deep inner world and. Mm and others don't i mean to be fair like we were talking earlier as well that the possibility or you know that he's obviously going through some kind of crisis which is probably more extreme than what other people are going through right people don't normally lose touch with meaning to the extent that he has obviously they normally have more to anchor them to mm. a meaning
0: even if it is that they've just created a meaning it might mm-hmm. just be family
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know children friends beliefs and they've chosen those meanings but he doesn't have anything to anchor him yeah. to the world and he just loses it
1: yeah I was just going to say like going back to um, what were we talking about in his character that there was yeah how he like takes responsibility but also distances himself and that there's, like, other duplicities in his character, which, and that's one of them, the kind of thing with other people and denying them this inner world, but he's kind of really, really attentive to them and their kind of physical detail and, like, their their mm. physical mm. beings. Like, he's very, very attentive to that detail, but mm. he doesn't acknowledge or give them any kind of internal... Mm life or emotions and that's essentially and he admits that later in the book doesn't he that's how he kills the maid because he basically doesn't it's a failure of the imagination like he completely fails to imagine her life and what I found really striking about that as well is that it's juxtaposed with the fact that he's stolen that portrait yeah we need to talk about that (laughs) and I was like what like what is the point of him seeing that portrait I was like why is John Banville including that. It seems a bit random, and I couldn't kind of piece it together. And then
0: mm-hmm.
1: I kind of realised like, when it stands next to the way he saw the maid, mm-hmm. who is a living, breathing human being, and when he sees the girl, the portrait he steals is of a girl, he responds to them in completely different ways. And when he sees the girl in the portrait, he projects this entire life Mm -hmm. for her like he speculates you know what kind of life she would have had like how she'd have related to her father what she would have done on a day-to-day basis Mm. he turns and looks at the maid and literally doesn't see any of that and Mm. she's a real person who's like alive so this kind of like how he can relate more easily to art or something that's fake than he can to something which is real and I wonder if that's because it's the idea of possession and ownership
0: because he like you said he has this really eloquent imagination for the the fake maid in the painting and really you know talks about like subtle feelings she might have but then maybe it's because he can create that it makes it kind of calms him Mm -hmm. or like makes him feel like safe or powerful as well because he creates this kind of inner emotional world for her but it's all just part of his kind of like, his own game, really. Like, he likes to imagine it because he's still the one that's creating it in the first place. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Yeah, I, I wondered about the contrast between them. I wondered whether it was trying to make a broader point, and I think this was... I maybe read an interview that John Banville did or something where he maybe hinted at this, that that is not just something which is specific to him and that that is related to maybe a wider spread uh thing that humans do as in and then I was thinking like do is there a thing where we relate more easily to art or more Mm. easily to fiction than we do to people people in real life and I definitely think that there might be something there
0: yeah that's an interesting point was he talking about do you remember when he said that like Was he talking about it in terms of empathy and like being people being, you know, caring more, having more empathy for like fictional characters than
1: real people on the street next to them? Or did he just mean generally? I don't think he said explicitly. I actually have just found that I wrote a bit down that he said. um, He said, so he's talking about in the novel, he says, um, the border between art and life has become blurred and not just for Freddie. We too are somehow implicated in this crime. And that's kind of what made me think about it the fact that he is so absorbed in the painting and mm. can so easily draw up this complex kind of emotional, like, you know, like his imagination doesn't fail him when it comes to that. Yeah. But it completely fails him when he is looking at the real people who surround him in his life. It's just an interesting... So the question is why? Why does he fail when, the, when it comes to the real people? I mean, maybe he's just, maybe it's as simple as that he's just a snob.
0: Yeah, and then I, I, yeah, I do think class comes into it. Yeah, I do think he finds it really hard to relate to people that aren't from the same background as him, or imagine their lives. Because even though the maid in the painting is a maid, like mm-hmm. she's exotic enough and from you know the past, or is it like it's like a Dutch painting from mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of years ago? Like she's got that allure about her.
1: And maybe she's just distanced enough from him that he doesn't have to deal with the realities of her existence, like yeah. he can he has this safe distance from her so he can almost i don't know elaborate it from a safe space. Mm. It kind of reminded me when I was thinking about whether people respond more strongly to fiction than they do to reality. It kind of reminded me of um going to see something like a film like um i Daniel Blake," yeah. And the amount of kind of like, you know, middle class people, including us, who went to see that film mm-hmm. and were moved really strongly by it and, you know, could appreciate it as, as a really, really great film and stuff. It made me imagine people going to see that film and really relating to it and almost in a kind of, uh, enjoy like, enjoy like, relishing that kind of like experience yeah yeah
0: and and it's like emotional catharsis yeah
1: because and that being easy for them but then turning around and you know like i don't know walking through a council estate Mm. near their house not having that any Mm. of those emotions Mm. at all because it's just is maybe it's just less easy to do that when it's real people who you are having to look in the eye Mm. and you realize you have some kind of connection to or you know you're Implicated in the but also, way like, they live their lives. You don't necessarily.
0: You even if they walk through like this council state every day or whatever, they're not going to have any kind of understanding of what's going on in individual people's lives, are they? Because mm-hmm. they don't have the benefit of an, a film to kind of take them through mm-hmm. a month in a life of that person. Yeah. Because we're also kind of in our own bubble and and sort of on our own. Like they, it's not there It's not that I'm like lessening the sort of responsibility but they're just they're just seeing a council estate or they're just seeing like a really there is one-dimensional that. perception of the people
1: yeah like if, really... they, if
0: they were sat in a room with just a person maybe they would get an
1: i daniel blake reaction i think that they would however i think that the proximity of that would be incredibly uncomfortable and it wouldn't be an enjoyable experience like going mm. to see i daniel blake or going to see I don't know, I'm trying to think of another example of a film like that, is, you know, it's hard, it makes you feel emotions, blah, blah, blah. But in a kind of... uh, I don't know. There's something to relish there, whereas... Yeah, and
0: you feel good about yourself because you watch it and you're like, I'm watching this and I know this situation is terrible. So then you feel good because you recognise that Mm -hmm. inequality or
1: that injustice. Yeah. Whereas I think if you're face-to-face with something, like someone who literally lives around the corner to you, it's maybe a bit too close for comfort, and maybe, mm. I don't know, maybe that has an element of it. It's just a kind of the art versus the the reality. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from, definitely. Because he is, a, I don't know, I think he is a bit of a snob, isn't he? It's
0: kind yeah, of... he's a massive snob, and even like, even the other rich people in his life, like, make kind of snarky comments at him mm-hmm. and, and just kind of in, allude that he's even more of a snob than they are yeah They're like why have you got all these false pretenses or like you're a snob mm-hmm. this is silly um you've grown up to be a snob and he's obviously um, massively entitled as well Yeah, it just it's quite frustrating reading it as well because i i wish that you could get inside the head of like his wife or like the other lady yeah. that he he kind of thinks he's in love with one minute and then he's not but he knew her when he was younger like a lot of novels you would get like different chapters from the like perspective of different characters and you just Mm -hmm. don't get any of that here and I wish that I could just sort of know what she's thinking yeah um and then I think it's it's quite yeah it's quite strong like telling at the end when um he finds out that his Mother didn't leave him anything in her will, like she basically wrote him out of the will and mm-hmm. his inheritance. And you can kind of see it coming like, you're like, obviously, you, yeah. you left her and lived abroad for years and didn't talk to her, and you're horrible, all this stuff. But then he's like really flawed by it and mm-hmm. can't believe that it's happened.
1: Yeah, I think there's always going to be that frustration when you're reading something from such a narcissistic narrator, but also mm. such an unreliable narrator because yeah. you don't you literally don't know what he if what he's saying is true yeah. or you know any of it another um kind of dualism in his um character as well, which I thought was really uh i don't know that I kind of like liked was his sheer arrogance. In what we were talking about, since then his snobbery and his arrogance and his sense of kind of like self entitlement, versus his utter like self disgust. <laughs> yeah. But like, because he can flip yeah. so suddenly from like one to the other, and it it was really cleverly done. Yeah, some of that. Some of his like
0: physical, again physical descriptions of himself are like really gross. Yeah. Like um, he says. I could feel my horrible smile, like something sticky that had dripped
1: on my, onto my face. <laughs> I like the bits where he kind of went out of himself, so he almost yeah. was in himself feeling all smug and superior, and then he would just have this moment like of, I don't know, he would leave himself and look at himself from afar, and just be like, oh God, I'm really gross. <laughs> yeah. It's like he says, I saw myself, as if from one of those sunstruck windows, skulking along here in the dust, hot, disgruntled, overweight, head bowed, and... Fat back bent, my white suit rocked at the armpits and sagging in the arse, a figure of fun, the punchline. And then I think this mm. bit might... One of the bits where the contrast is kind of most evident is when he's He's at her mum's house and there's um like a stable girl there. And yeah. um, he says, <laughs> When I spoke to her, the poor girl turned crimson and wincingly extended a callous little paw as if she were afraid I might be going to keep it. I gave her one of my special slow smiles and saw myself through her eyes, a tall tanned hunk in a linen suit, leaning over her on a summer lawn and murmuring dark words. And then the pony kind of edges into him Mm. and he kind of puts his hand on it. It says, um, I put my hand on its flank to push it away and was startled by the solidity, the actuality of the animal, the coarse dry coat, the dense unyielding flesh beneath, the blood warmth. Shocked, I took my hand away quickly and stepped back. Suddenly I had a vivid, queasy sense of myself. Not the tanned pin-up now, but something else. Something pallid and slack and soft. I was aware of my toenails, my anus, my damp, constricted crotch, and I was ashamed. (laughs) Yeah, that's brilliant. And that's in, like, one paragraph. (laughs) I don't know, and I'm trying to think how,
0: you know, is that normal? Like, do do most people have just, like one second thinking yeah i'm I'm amazing and then the next being like i'm disgusting (laughs) i don't know
1: if that is normal i don't know whether it's that drastic but it's it's almost like a microcosm or maybe a more intense version of what you experience over your life like Mm. you can experience moments where you're like oh yeah i'm doing quite well or i'm quite a nice person or whatever and then maybe other moments where you're like oh you feel the opposite about yourself yeah I guess it's a it's a comment on, I guess, the subjectivity of kind of your identity mm-hmm. or maybe the multiplicity of identity rather than there being one consistent kind of you. There's maybe lots of different yous within the same body.
0: Yeah, I think that that's kind of playing on his whole description of how he killed her, isn't it? Like, he kind of... He says he did it, but then he talks about himself as if there are like other parts of him like there's that like monster in him mm-hmm. but not but not like a Jekyll and Hyde more just like they're equally all him and
1: yeah and that actually does link back to before we started recording we we're talking about maybe like an existentialist reading of it and that is like existentialism is existence preceding essence and that's that kind of idea of identity completely complies with that because there is no essence of his personality or his identity Mm. you know he is what he does or the way he exists determines his essence and so I don't know I kind of buy into that concept of identity a lot a lot more I think
0: is it so does that mean so is it saying that you you are just what you do like yeah, so if you kill someone, then you're you're a murderer. But yeah. then if you did something nice, you're yeah. Nice... But there's
1: yeah, but there's nothing about you which is which okay. predetermines or you know it's not preordained yeah. in your essence that you're well, going to be a can, murderer.
0: Yeah, and that can be quite a liberating thing then because everyone has the capability of being a good person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. All babies are innocent.
1: <laughs> and I think with him, he. I don't know. He is having what can be quite accurately described as an existential crisis in that he is discovering or not discovering. It seems like he's always maybe felt like that that there is no meaning in the world. Mm. There's no good or evil. Um, he can't yeah. see any meaning. And that I like that
0: ties into his early life when he's like in his twenties and he moves to America, because he's in Berkeley in the 60s. I think he's supposed to be there in, like, 68 or 69, like, in the sort of heart of the counterculture mm-hmm. that's all about, like, you know, there, there's more to life, like, we need to create our own meaning, our own society. Yeah. And he's, like, in the midst of this, like, social revolution, and he's just doing nothing. Like, yeah. it's almost like, well, as a reader, unless you know what was happening at that time, you wouldn't know from mm-hmm. this book... He's just kind of floating about, yeah, not taking part in anything real, mm-hmm. just like he like he's saying before, like just stuff happening to him sort of thing, yeah, he has no interest in anything else.
1: you do get the sense that he has always been like that, yeah, um I don't know whether that's realistic and whether you can trust him in in that, but yeah, he it is like he's he's come face to face with the fact that nothing that happens is meaningful, everything's contingent, everything's random, you know, he's drifting through life, you can't control what what life throws at you kind of thing so it's almost like the idea of the absurd in like existential existentialist Mm. philosophy he comes face to face with that but rather than kind of being authentic and like using his freedom in an authentic way to create his own meaning for his life and use freedom in the way that he should be using it he instead drifts along and essentially ensures that his freedom is taken away in a literal sense in yeah. that he's arrested and taken to prison and then that, that's another great bit that where he, when he's arrested and he <laughs> describes it as like snuggling down between yeah. the policeman in the car like oh finally yeah. he can kind of relax and he says you know, so something like true freedom is doing the very worst thing imaginable, but for him, that's not. I think that that's freedom from his existential crisis. It's freedom from the fact that he was looking into this abyss yeah. and being like, "Oh my god, there is no meaning. Like I could do anything. I have complete freedom. Like I could make any decision." Which you know is like a daunting part of the human condition Mm. and rather than dealing with that he makes sure that it's taken away from him so he has no choice
0: yeah like he gets like a really good thrill from seeing his prison cell and it's like Mm -hmm. oh that it is just like a little toilet and a bed and that's it and he just loves that simplicity of not having a choice about anything yeah and being stuck there Mm -hmm. Yeah. What? So I wanted to talk about like the last two pages because I feel like there's kind of a, a shift quite quickly at the end where he he starts trying to basically bring the girl back to life that he killed. Not obviously like literally, but giving her a life mm-hmm. so that. Because he realises when he says, it was my failure of my imagination which made me kill her because he didn't really see her as a, a true human being or alive, he starts like trying to learn about her life and looking at all the newspaper clippings of the papers that sort of interviewed her family and he finds out more about her and he, I think he's realising that like by learning about her is almost part of his redemption in a way mm-hmm. or like the start of it. And, um Um, he describes how um, in the prison workshop, he says, I caught her smell, faint, sharp, metallic, unmistakable. It is the smell of metal polish. She must have been doing the silver that day. I was so happy when I identified it. Anything seemed possible. I I don't know, you could probably read that in like different ways. But I kind of felt the fact that he was so happy about that smell is Mm -hmm. almost like part of him trying to become a person like yeah. become a real compassionate person there's a glimmer of understanding there isn't there yeah which
1: he just hasn't had before
0: and then throughout the whole novel he has like this recurring dream that he talks about um where there's like a darkened room with a door frame and there's always like a faint figure in it or like nothing there and he's always like in his dream wanting to see who's in the doorway and then just after he smells that smell of the maid that he murdered he says that Um, It even seemed that someday I might wake up and see, coming forward from the darkened room into the frame of that doorway, which is always in my mind now, a a child, a girl, one whom I will recognise at once without the shadow of a doubt, like, presumably, as the girl he murdered. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means, but it does just feel like he might be coming out this crisis period.
1: Yeah, and there are other kind of hints at that as well, when he, um... oh, when is the bit? Oh, I found it. Up there. I don't know what the first bit is, though. Yes, an explorer. Oh, oh about the yeah. guy falling on him. Yeah, so he says that he's an explorer and glimpsing a new continent from the prow of a sinking ship. And don't mistake me, I don't imagine for a second that such incidents as this, such forays into the new world, will abate my guilt one whit. But maybe they signify something for the future. So there's this kind of hint at redemption, and maybe mm. that he will... I don't know maybe he will discover that there's some kind of like meaning that he can find in life or value in life but Mm. I think for him like if he did it would be through his realisation that there are other people experiencing the same thing as him because I think that Mm. is his complete inability to like connect with anyone else or like see beyond his own consciousness is what is maybe inhibiting him from Finding anything, yeah. Finding of meaning in the find, world, yeah.
0: He's never going to find meaning for himself or get out of this like abyss he's in mm-hmm. if he doesn't truly see other people's lives, yeah, for what like for what they are in their complexity. Yeah, I like the last couple of sentences as well.
1: <laughs> Read them. Oh. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: Building the tension. <laughs> um, so he's he's telling the story to the inspector, who then laughs and says, "Come on, Freddy." He said, "How much of it is true?" It was the first time he had called me by my name. "True, Inspector," I said. "All of it. None of it. Only the shame." What does that mean, Jess? <laughs> Maybe none of it. Everything he said could basically just be made up. Yeah. Um, But the only real thing is
1: is the shame. The bit that made me think that all of it might be made up is that the guy says as well, he gave me a wry look. Did you put in about being a scientist, he said, and knowing the baron's woman and owing money, all that stuff. I smiled. It's my story, I said, and I'm sticking to it. So it's... (laughs) I don't know, that Mm. wry smile makes me think, like, the inspector knows that's not true. Yeah
0: probably just made it all up yeah um so we said that we would stick to 45 minutes for our podcast um but we forgot to check what time it was when we started recording (laughs) so it could be like an hour and 45 minutes so sorry about that (laughs) listeners all two and a two of you yeah i'll try Um, and cut some stuff out yeah cut me out (laughs) um so we'll try and wrap it up now um so we need to give it a rating Mm -hmm. um do we do out of 10? Yeah, out yeah. of 10. And I haven't even thought about what my rating is going to be.
1: Here. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, yeah. But I think I'm just giving everything the same rating. <laughs> yeah. What, like a mediocre rating? <laughs> it's like I want to go back and change Changing. my previous rating. You can't do a pitchfork. Um, I don't know. When I've been feeling most favourable towards it, I've wanted to give an 8. Okay. Because I really liked it, and I liked the themes, and I found it... There's a lot to think about, which Mm -hmm. I really like, and I will be thinking about it for a while.
0: Yeah, I feel like I'm... Yeah, the fact that I remembered it from uni, there must be something to it. Although I do think it would read better if you kind of did it all in one go Mm -hmm. because I was reading it like 10 pages at a time But I think if you just sat there and read it all in one go you'd get more of like the atmospheric yeah kind of build up I think that's the thing
1: I read Um, basically the second half all in one go this weekend so
0: um I'll give it um I'm gonna go seven out of ten hangovers because we (laughs) were supposed to be doing seven out of ten something
1: which you have done. I'm insisting do. on that.
0: <laughs> just let it go. <laughs> That's my good idea. Um, so, you, Jess, you need to... What?
1: What are you looking me like <laughs> for? Sorry. I didn't realise I was looking at you in a weird way. What? Um, no, I just remembered that I was going to talk to you about my choice before we started recording. Oh. Because, so a lot of, like, the existential themes in it kind of made me want to read something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So I had some ideas, but um, maybe I'll float the ideas past you. No, and it's then your you can... choice.
0: Do you just pick something? I'm, I'm at the mercy of your choice for this next episode.
1: Do you want something fiction or non-fiction? I don't care. Okay. Well, I think we should do Nausea by Sartre then next. Okay.
0: Everyone run out and buy your copy. Um <laughs> so yep yeah, that's the end of this episode thank you all very much for listening goodbye <laughs> <laughs> goodbye